0: Acts chapter 17. We're going to read the first nine verses of Acts 17. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, "'These men who have upset the world have come here also.'" And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Let me ask you a question this morning. How many of the Apostle Paul's books are mentioned in the book of Acts by Luke? How many of the Apostle Paul's books that he wrote, his epistles, how many of them are mentioned by Luke in the book of Acts? I'll give you a second to think that through for a little bit. I'm not asking how many churches to whom Paul wrote letters is mentioned in the book of Acts. How many of Paul's letters are mentioned in the book of Acts? Now, he wrote 13 that are in our New Testament. Some people might quibble and say, well, we think he wrote Hebrews too. I'm not convinced that Paul wrote Hebrews, so I'll leave Hebrews out of the equation. That leaves 13 letters that Paul would have written. Three of them were written after the book of Acts was complete. That's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. So that leaves ten letters. How many of those ten letters does Luke mention in the book of Acts? You know the answer? Zero. Not one. Now that's curious to me. Luke was with Paul when he wrote the book of Acts. Luke traveled with Paul. Paul picked Luke up in Troas and took him across the Aegean Sea over to Neapolis and then to Philippi. And Luke was with Paul to the end of his life. Luke is mentioned in three of Paul's letters. Second Timothy, which was written after the book of Acts. And he's also mentioned in Philemon and Colossians. So we know that Luke would have been familiar with the letters that Paul wrote because Luke was there when Paul wrote at least a couple of them. Luke would have known Paul better than almost anybody else. He's the hero of his book the Apostle Paul is. Paul is the central character of all that Luke writes throughout the book of Acts. Why does Luke not mention any letters that the Apostle Paul writes? It would have been easy for Luke to have done so. He could have said, for instance, at the end of Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas stayed a long time in Antioch with the disciples there, and while he was there, he wrote a letter to the churches that he had just visited in the region of Galatia. He could have just included that little detail. And then you and I would have come to that and we would have said, well, that's obviously referring to the book that we know as the book of Galatians. And he could have done that. But although Luke does not give us, does not mention anything that Paul wrote, although he doesn't care to tell us that Paul wrote or what Paul wrote or even when Paul wrote his letters, Luke does fill in for us all of the background information for most, if not all, of the letters that the apostle Paul wrote. For instance, without ever mentioning the book of Galatians, Luke tells us how the churches in Galatia were started, who started them, how they were started, when they were started, and that even fills us in on the theological controversy that was swirling about at the time, that of circumcision. Without ever mentioning the letter to the Philippians, Luke fills us in on how the Apostle Paul was brought to Philippi, who he evangelized at Philippi, the events that happened at Philippi, and eventually how he was sort of moved on out of the city of Philippi and asked to leave at the end of chapter 16. And now Luke does it again. Today we get to see all of the background information for how another one of Paul's churches was started, that in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. We're going to be taking the next two Lord's Days and looking at the events that unfolded in the context of the book of Thessalonians, really the church in Thessalonica and how it was started and the affliction that they endured. Today we're going to be looking at the formation of that church and then next week, we will well actually two Lord's Days from today, we will look at the affliction that that church endured. So we're going to cover the first four verses of Acts chapter 17. And I would encourage you to do this. Sometime in the next couple of weeks, read through 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians a couple of times. Get familiar with those epistles that Paul writes to those, this church in Thessalonica. These are, those are the two letters that Paul wrote to the believers that he wins to the Lord in Acts chapter 17 get a flavor for what he's writing about how he feels about them some of the issues that come up in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians because it's going to it's going to play in heavily next time we're in Acts chapter 17 together so today we'll look at the formation of the church Acts chapter 17 verse 1 now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia they came to Thessalonica at the end of Acts chapter 17 you remember the apostle Paul was asked by the magistrates politely if he would leave the city of Philippi and he does And Luke says he traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia and came to Thessalonica. It is a 30-mile journey from Philippi to Amphipolis. It's 27 miles from Amphipolis to Apollonia. And I'll be glad when I get past these two words. And it's another 38 miles from Apollonia to Thessalonica. So it's a 95-mile journey, and Luke seems to indicate that the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy made that journey in three days. He mentions where they, likely where they stopped overnight. Now, we would conjecture to say that Paul and Silas and Timothy would have traveled by horseback, maybe some horses that they got from some of the believers in Philippi. Paul would still have been recovering from the beating he got in Philippi, so he was in no condition to cover 38 miles in a day. But it seems as if the Apostle Paul doesn't stop in Amphipolis or Amphipolis or in Apollonia. He just makes a beeline to the city of Thessalonica. He would have traveled along the Via Ignatia, a major road that went from Philippi through those two cities, right into Thessalonica, and it would have went right through the city of Thessalonica, and still today in the modern day city, which is called Thessaloniki or Salonica, there is a Via Ignatia that takes the same route and bears the same name as the street that the Apostle Paul walked through. It doesn't seem that Luke was with Paul. You know how I know that? Luke switches from we to they again. It seems as if the Apostle Paul left Luke in Philippi because the next time that Luke mentions himself being with Paul is on the third missionary journey when Paul stops back into Philippi and then he picks up Dr. Luke. So he must have left Luke in Philippi. Luke was a Gentile, so he wouldn't have been subject to all of the anti-Jewish hatred that Paul and Silas were subject to. So Paul likely left Luke there to attend to that church and to sort of oversee it and helped them out and so luke stayed in philippi the city of thessalonica was founded in 315 let me just give you some background information 315 bc by cassander the king of macedonia he named the city after his wife thessalonica or maybe her name was thessalonica that sounds a bit more feminine doesn't it not thessalonica thessalonica sounds like a brand of shoes or sports sporting equipment like nike especially Thess- especially thessaloniki the modern day city so it was probably Thessalonica, and I have always called it Thessalonica. So if you're used to pronouncing it Thessalonica, you're probably more accurate, but not during Sunday mornings when we're here talking about Thessalonica. So I'm just going to pronounce it Thessalonica. He named it after his wife Thessalonica. And uh, what? That was his wife's name. I'm assuming it wasn't Thessalonica. That would be more masculine name, Thessalonica. So he named Thessalonica after his wife Thessalonica. And she was the daughter of Philip II. Philip II, you remember, is the one after whom Philippi is named. Philip II is not only the father of Thessalonica, he's also the father of Alexander the Great. You say, I have a hard time keeping track of all of the family tree that you're given to me. All you need to know is that you had a lot of powerful people founding cities and naming them after their friends and family. That's what happened. 315 B.C. and 146 B.C., Thessalonica, or Thessalonica became the seat of the Roman administration of the province, the capital city. And it wasn't Paul's day. It was a tremendous commercial city. It was right on the coast of the Aegean Sea. And all of its ports provided sort of a link between the landmass of Macedonia and the trading routes of the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean. And so everything that came into that northern part of Macedonia came through Thessalonica. And in Paul's day, it was home to between 200 and 250,000 people in the city of Thessalonica. And so the Apostle Paul aims for Thessalonica, and in Thessalonica he finds a synagogue. Now this brings us to the first of three things that characterize Paul's ministry in Thessalonica, and that is his good strategy. His good strategy. Read verses 1 and 2. He passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and he came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul was not some wandering vagabond who sort of meandered through the countryside hoping to find a city in which he could tell somebody about Jesus. That's not how Paul operated. The Apostle Paul did not throw darts at the map of the Mediterranean Sea and decide to go next to whatever city the dart landed closest to. The Apostle Paul did not sit around and wait for some idea to pop into his mind and then rush off by divine revelation to the next city. The Apostle Paul put a tremendous amount of prayer and a tremendous amount of thought into his itinerary. And as you look at the cities that Paul visited, they are laid out strategically. And you can see the wisdom in the cities that he chose to visit. The Apostle Paul thought thought through it, and he applied sound wisdom and common sense to his decisions, and he mapped out his itinerary. And he moves from Philippi to the capital city of Thessalonica. And as you look at the travels of the Apostle Paul, you'll notice that he stopped in commercial cities, capital cities, and cities that were central to the administration of the Roman Empire. He focuses his time and attention. It's not that he didn't stop in some of the backwater cities like Lystra or Berea, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, but the Apostle Paul spent his time and his effort in capital cities, commercial cities, and cities which were central to the administration of the Roman Empire. Why did Paul do that? Well, if you found a church in a city which is a center for trade, you're going to have a lot of people coming into the city and a lot of people going out of the city. And chances are very good that a lot of those people coming into the city are going to meet a Christian in their business transactions or they're going to hear the gospel and then become a believer and then take their gospel with them when they leave the city on their trade route. So the Apostle Paul picked places where... Movers and shakers were at, businessmen were at, large population centers, places where you had a lot of people traveling in and a lot of people traveling out because that would increase the opportunity for the gospel to leave that city and go to the other places. Friends, it's just good strategy. It's common sense. The Apostle Paul is getting the biggest bang for his buck. He could have stopped at every little watering hole between Philippi and Thessalonica and walked out into the brush or out into the desert and found some little family and shared the gospel with them and led them to Christ. He could have done that. He could have gone up into the hills and found recluses and shared the gospel with them. Or little tribes and little villages along the way. But the Apostle Paul didn't do that. Because the Apostle Paul understood, if I plant a church in Philippi and I plant a church in Thessalonica the gospel will get to Amphipolis and Apollonia without me. Because people will be traveling from Philippi to Thessalonica through these major cities. There was no synagogue in Amphipolis or in Apollonia, which explains why Paul didn't stop there. But he knew, if I plant a good healthy church in Philippi, if I plant a good healthy church in Thessalonica, the gospel will get everywhere else. And that's exactly what happened. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the apostle Paul says to them, You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for the word of the Lord sounded forth from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, your faith toward God has gone out. You know what Thessalonica ended up being? The epicenter from which the rest of that continent was reached. Paul says the Gospel has gone forth from you throughout Macedonia, throughout Achaia. Your faith has spread. Why? Because they were a commercial center. And those believers were committed to Christ and they shared the gospel and the gospel message just began to mushroom out from Thessalonica. It ended up taking over Apollonia and Epipolis and Philippi and Thessalonica and all Macedonia and Achaia. The gospel spread. That's his strategy. But look at the second element of his strategy. He went into the synagogues. Luke says, as was his custom. Over and over and over again in the book of Acts we see this. The Apostle Paul coming to a city, and what is the first thing he does? Goes into the synagogues. Because it is in the synagogue that he can take the Gospel to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. And that was the Apostle Paul's missionary strategy. I take Christ to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. He never explains why he does it that way. He just does it that way. You can see the common sense wisdom in that approach. In the synagogue, you're going to find a copy of the Old Testament Scriptures. You're going to find people who are familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures. You're going to find people who are sensitive to the teaching of the Old Testament Scriptures. God-fearing Gentiles and Jews who were waiting for their Messiah. That is, that is good soil for the word of the Gospel. So Paul goes into the synagogues. And there he reasons with them from the Scriptures for three Sabbaths. That was his skill. Or that was his strategy. Going into the synagogues and going to commercial cities. Now, I want you to notice something in verse 2. According to Paul's customs, he went into them for three Sabbaths. Now, reading that, how long would you say the Apostle Paul was in Thessalonica? Three weeks at the outside? No. You know how I know that? From his other letters. Philippians chapter 4, verse 16, he says to the Philippians, On more than one occasion, you sent a gift for my needs in Thessalonica. They sent two love offerings to help the apostle Paul while he was in Thessalonica. First Thessalonians chapter two, Paul says, "We set up shop. We worked with our own hands, providing for our needs night and day, so that we might not be a burden to any of you." And in First Thessalonians chapter one, the apostle Paul speaks of how they had turned from idols to serve the living and true God. That doesn't describe God-fearing Greeks and Jews, idol worshippers. By the time the apostle Paul left Thessalonica, the church no longer consisted primarily of Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, the church consisted primarily of pagans who had turned from their idolatry to Christ. Philippi had sent a gift on two occasions, and Paul said, we provided for our own needs while we were there. His ministry in the synagogue lasted three weeks. But I would speculate, I would propose that his ministry in Thessalonica likely lasted a few months. Long enough that the Philippians were able to send a couple of love offerings to him to help out with his needs while he was there. He wouldn't have needed that if it were only a couple of weeks. So he stays in, Philippi, stays in Thessalonica for a few months. That is his strategy. To the commercial centers and into the synagogues. Now I want you to look at his skill. Look at verse 3. He, the end of verse 2. He was reasoning with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, who I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ." He was reasoning with them. He was explaining. He was giving evidence. He was saying. He was proclaiming. That's a lot of talking, isn't it? That's what the Apostle Paul was doing. Look at the skill involved in that. He was reasoning with them from the Scriptures. Dialegomai is the word, and it's the word from which we get our English word dialogue. It's back and forth. He stood in the synagogue and there was a question and answer. There was interaction and discussion with the people. And he was explaining and he was marshalling all of his arguments, all of his Old Testament texts. It's not the word for a formal sermon, although the Apostle Paul did that as well because it says that he was giving evidence and explaining the Scriptures to them. But in the synagogue for three consecutive Sabbaths, the Apostle Paul did Q&A discussion and explaining the Scriptures and illustrating it and proclaiming to them and seeking to convince those people that Jesus was the Christ. Doing it That must have been something phenomenal to watch. That must have been phenomenal to watch that. It is difficult to do a question and answer. Every once in a while on a Friday night in our Awana ministry, we have an Ask the Pastor night. Now, I would be happy if one of the other pastors, Jess or Dave, were to do this, but it always falls on me. It's Ask the Pastor night, and they they just it's for the older two groups, the third and fourth graders and the fifth and sixth graders, and it's for council time, and the kids are able to ask or, or invited to ask any question that's on their mind. And when we do this, there are two rules that I have for Ask the Pastor Night. Number one, you can't ask a question just for the simple reason of gaining a laugh from your friends. It has to be a serious question. Because they would be likely, they would likely want to ask some question to get all of their friends to laugh and think that's cute and you would be, not be surprised to find out what kind of stupid things third and fourth graders think are cool. That's almost as bad as our LITs, but they, they think that these things are cool. So that's the first that's the first requirement. You have to ask something. It has to be a serious question. If it's a serious question, then there's no such thing as a stupid question. But here's the second rule that we have for Ask the Pastor night. You have to understand that the purpose of this is not to stump Pastor Jim, because that's relatively easy to do. Ask me how many Greek words are in uh, John 1.1. I don't know that. There's a lot of stuff that I don't know. There's all kinds of things that I don't know. I tell them that. I'm just You, you may ask a question that I don't know. And when you're doing question and answer like that, you've got to be able to change tracks quickly from one topic or subject and then over to some totally unrelated idea and be able to gather your thoughts and articulate an answer to them. It's tough, especially when you're like me, you don't think quick on your feet. I don't think quick sitting down, for that matter. So it's difficult. You can have one question will be, why did Jesus have to die? Man, what an opportunity to present the gospel. So I do. And the next question is, why are some words in red? Are they more important than the others? Are there animals in heaven? And then the next question is, why are the edges of my Bible gold? They have no clue. These are the kids that we minister to. They have no clue. And it's tough. Listen, folks, some of the people that Paul was doing this with in the synagogues, they were intent on stumping him. That's what they wanted to do. These Jews who opposed him wanted to discredit his ministry, discredit his message, and make him look like a fool in front of all these people who are actually listening to him. Some of them opposed him. Verse 5, they really put that opposition into action. Look at his skill. He was reasoning, he was explaining, and look at the tool that he uses from the Scriptures. Not arguing from human wisdom, not arguing from psychology or philosophy or the latest trend or the newsletter... Uh, the newspaper headlines. He wasn't arguing from culture or tradition or customs or any of that. What did the Apostle Paul use? He took the Word of God in the synagogue and he interacted with these people over it and he was seeking to persuade them that Jesus is the Christ. Giving his illustrations, giving his examples, explaining it and putting one right next to the other and saying, look, Jesus the Christ had to suffer and rise again. That was what he was trying to promote to them. And we can get an idea of what kind of message the Apostle Paul would have had because we get an example of it in Acts chapter 13, his message in Pisidian Antioch. He would have used passages like Isaiah 52 and 53 about the suffering servant of the Lord. He would have used psalms like Psalm 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 110. He had all of the Old Testament at his fingertips. And he could use any passage and bring Christ into the discussion. All of the prophets, all of the law, all fulfilled and summed up in the person of Christ. And the Apostle Paul with the Old Testament as his tool went into the synagogue and with the Jews he reasoned and explained and persuaded and proclaimed and sought to win them over to the notion that Jesus was the Christ. And he was telling them the Christ had to suffer. Why did the Christ have to suffer? Because God had promised to David, I'll sit one of your descendants on your throne and he'll rule forever. This is how Paul argues in Acts chapter 13. And because God promised to David that He would have a son who would rule on His throne forever, that son had to no longer be susceptible to corruption or to decay. And the only way to accomplish that was for that son to die and to be risen again, never subject to decay, and seated on the throne of David. And the Apostle Paul would have declared not only the Davidic promise, but he would have said something like what Peter said, look, it was predestined, and predetermined by the plan of God that his son should suffer. Acts chapter 2 verse 23. Acts chapter 4 verse 28. It had to happen. Why? Because God predestined it from eternity past to our glory. And so it must come to pass. This is what he would have been arguing. Now friends, let me share with you something that's encouragement. I want you to notice the skill of the apostle Paul articulating, defending, Reasoning, explaining, question and answer. Look at the knowledge that the man has. We see this not only here in Acts 17, but also in his epistles. Probably no greater theological mind ever to have been graced the face of this planet than Saul of Tarsus or the Apostle Paul. He unloads all of his rabbinic training, all of his knowledge of the Old Testament, all of his skill, all of his ability, all of his intellect, all of his natural giftedness, and all of his spiritual giftedness to convince these people that Jesus is the Christ. And his argument is simple. The Old Testament said that the Christ had to suffer. The Old Testament said that the Christ had to rise again. Jesus did suffer. Jesus did rise again. Therefore, Jesus is the Christ. How do you argue against that? What skill the man had and what intellect the man had. Now you say, Jim, how's that encouragement to me? I don't have that kind of skill. I don't have that kind of intellect. I don't have that kind of training, that kind of giftedness, that kind of talent. I could never do that. I'm no Apostle Paul. Flip back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I want to show you something. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Luke gives us a picture of Paul's skill, his ability, his intellect, his his craftsmanship with the word in proclaiming and in persuading these people i want you to look at 1 first thessalonians chapter 1 verse 5 and let's ask the apostle paul paul what was the secret verse 5 our gospel did not come to you in word only but also in power and in the holy spirit and with full conviction just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake turn to chapter 2 verse 13 For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. What's the secret, Paul? Is it in your giftedness? No. Our Gospel came to you in the power of the Spirit and not in Word only. You received the testimony of Scripture from us Not because it came from me, Paul says. Not as from men, but for what it is in truth. The Word of God. And that Word of God effectively works in you who believe. What's the secret? It is the Gospel or the Word of God coming in the power of the Spirit of God. Paul, does the secret to your ministry rest in your articulateness, your giftedness, your skill, your intellect and your training? No. And what is it? It's the Word of God that the Spirit of God uses To bring conviction in the heart of the sinner. And God by that work draws His people to Himself. It is the Word of God which does its work in you who believe. Luke gives us a picture of his skill. Paul says, it wasn't my skill. It was the Spirit. And folks, the bottom line is this. All of the skill, all of the training, all of the giftedness, all of the ability, and all of the intellect in the world is useless Unless the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and uses it to bring conviction and pierces the heart of the unbeliever. And does that mean that then there's no place for giftedness? There's no place for training? There's no place for skill? Not at all. Study to show yourself approved, a workman that needs not be ashamed. Learn how to rightly handle the Word of Truth, Paul said to Timothy. Stir up the spiritual gift that is within you through the laying on of hands. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Be prepared always to give an answer to anyone who asked your reason for the hope that is in you. And be like the Apostle Paul and engage people in the discussion and debate and dialogue and prove and explain and seek to convince them to see the truth. All the while understanding, if anything happens, it is the work of the sovereign God who alone is responsible for the salvation of the sinner. So we use both. Look at his skill. Third, I want you to notice the success that the Lord granted him. Verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. Some of them were persuaded. Yeah. Paul did it. Or did he? Did Paul do it? Well, Jim, I thought you just said the Spirit of God did it. Well, the Spirit of God does do it, but Paul did it. They were persuaded. He convinced. He he reasoned. He explained. He proclaimed. And some of them were persuaded. Paul says the secret really rested in the Spirit of God who took the Gospel and brought it with power and conviction to their hearts. That's why you believe, because the Word of God did its work in you who believe. First Thessalonians 2.13 But Paul persuaded them. And we might keep in mind what Luke says elsewhere in the book of Acts. They were persuaded. Why? Because the Lord opened their heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul, why? In order that all those who were appointed to eternal life might believe. Acts 16 verse 10, or 14, 16 verse 10 and Acts 13 verse 48. They were persuaded. Interesting word that Luke uses. He uses it seven more times to describe Paul and his ministry in the book of Acts. And I want you to listen to some of these references, and I'll read you a couple of a couple of passages from the book of Acts. Acts 18 verse 4 says that Paul was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, and seeking to persuade Jews and Greeks. In Acts 18.13, the charge was brought against Paul. This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Acts 19, verse eight. he entered the synagogue and he continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them of the kingdom of God. In Acts 19.26, the Ephesian businessmen bring a charge against Paul, and this is their charge. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost... All of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. In Acts 26, verse 28, Agrippa said, Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Acts 28, verses 23 and 24, the book of Acts ends like this. It says, When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him in his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets, from morning until evening, some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And listen to how Paul describes his own ministry, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Now wonderful. Friends, do you persuade anybody? Is that what you seek to do? Persuade people to the truth? Why else do you minister? Why else do you treat, teach? Why else would you ever share Christ if not for the sole purpose of persuading them to the truth or to Jesus? I'll be honest with you. When I prepare a message all week long, and when I stand up here to preach, I have one objective in mind, and that is to persuade you. I want to persuade you to the truth. I want to persuade you to believe that the Scripture speaks to you today. I want to persuade you to obey it. I want to persuade you to love it. And for those among us on every Sunday morning who have never trusted Christ for salvation, I seek to persuade them to place their faith in Christ. I seek to persuade your doctrine so that it's in line with Scripture. I seek to persuade you toward Jesus. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, the Apostle Paul says, we persuade men. So much of what we do lacks persuasiveness, doesn't it? Well, I'd like to tell you about Jesus. He's the best thing that ever happened to me. Really. Really. Are you trying to persuade anybody? Is there fire in your bones or not? And if you love the truth, and if you're convinced of the truth, then you will seek to persuade people. And if you're not seeking to persuade anybody, there's only one reason why that can be. You don't really believe it yourself. You don't really love it yourself. And so why try and persuade anybody else? Well, I thought we're not supposed to try and do the persuading. I thought that was the role of the Holy Spirit. It is, but He uses you. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, Paul said, we persuade others. Sunday school teachers, let me ask you: Why do you teach if not to persuade your students toward the Word? Why do you work in Awana if not to persuade those kids to trust Christ for salvation? Why would you teach? Why would you preach? Why would you do anything in ministry if not if you're not seeking to persuade men and women? Everywhere Paul went, everything he did, he said, this is my goal. We persuade men. And I have no time, neither should you, for any teaching, any preaching, any ministry, any effort toward anything that does not seek the passionate persuasion of people to the truth. And if I love the truth, I'll seek to persuade you to it. And if I'm not trying to persuade you, it's because I don't love the truth. Or I really don't believe that it's true. Because if the truth is true, then people are dying and we need to persuade them. Oh, all the while understanding that the gospel must come with full conviction of the Holy Spirit. And it's the word of God which must do its work in those who believe. Some were persuaded, Luke said. Three groups were persuaded. Look in your Bible at verse 4. It tells you who those three groups were. There were some Jews, not many. Paul did not have a, a large turning to Christ amongst the Jewish community but a large number of God-fearing Greeks believed. Gentiles who had been in the synagogue and were fearing God and were there worshiping believed. And there's a third group that I find interesting that Luke singles out because he could have just told us there were Jews who believed and there were God-fearing Greeks who believed, but he tells us about a, a special group who believed, leading women, prominent women. These would have been the wives of some of the city leaders, wives of business leaders, sort of the upper crust of the city, They would have been women of wealth and women of means, women in influential positions. They believed and began to follow Paul. Why does Luke single them out? I think there's a reason, I'll show you in just a second. Why were they at the synagogue to begin with? What's the fashionable thing to do? If you're a Gentile woman and and your husband's the mayor, you go to the synagogue. It's the fashionable, cultural thing to do. Some of them showed up to be fashionable, and they left believers. Because Paul persuaded them to place their faith in Christ and they did. And so they were joined to the early church and they ended up leaving the synagogue in Thessalonica and becoming members and believers in the church. And what did that do to the Jews who were overseeing the synagogue? Verse 5, they became jealous. Why? Because now all of these wealthy women have left the synagogue and they're off with Paul. Oh, that's got to eat you up. There goes half your offering. People leave is it, it's half your offering. Well, these wealthy people have gone. So they get infuriated and they launch this attack against Paul and Silas, which we'll look at in a couple weeks. There seems to be have been, after Paul left Thessalonica, there seems to have been some slander that was circulated about the Apostle Paul that he answers in 1 Thessalonians. And I want you to turn back to 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. I want you to read a couple of verses here. I think this has to do with the leading or the wealthy women who believed in Thessalonica. Verse 5, at the end of it, the Apostle Paul says, Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. He's talking about his reputation and his integrity. Chapter 2, look at verse 3. For our exhortation, that is our teaching, does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Verse 5, for we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for what? Greed. God is witness. Verse 9, You recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. Somebody was saying of the Apostle Paul in Thessalonica, he's out for your money. He came here as a pretext to greed. Look who believed. It was the rich ladies. And now he drew them away to the church. He's in it for the cash. The Apostle Paul writes to the Thessalonians and says, You know that's not true. You know what kind of people we proved to be among you for your sake. We didn't come to you with a pretext for greed. We weren't after your money. You know how night and day we labored with our own hands to provide for our own needs so that we wouldn't be a burden to any of you Thessalonicans. Paul says, You know our integrity. Our gospel and our words did not come with impurity. We weren't after your coin. And they slandered him after he was gone. But you can raise that objection with the Apostle Paul. Why? Because he behaved with integrity towards the Thessalonians. Well, that's the formation of the second church on this second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. When Paul writes to the Thessalonians, his letters are filled with glowing adoration and praise for all of the things that they were doing right. Their witness, their testimony, their labor of love, their perseverance and hope, the brotherly love that they had one for another. Paul says, I don't even need to write to you about your brotherly love, but I'll just say this, continue in it. Thessalonica became a model church of New Testament Christianity in many respects. They had a few issues they needed to work on. Every church does. And Paul addresses those in the letters. We've looked at the formation of this church and the next time we're together in the book of Acts, we will look at the affliction that this church endured and what brought that affliction specifically. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank You for Your Word and for its teaching to us. We ask, God, that you would give to us the fire in our bones to make us men and women who are committed to persuading men and women to the truth which we believe with every atom of our being. Thank you for your word and what it teaches us and how it persuades us toward Christ and sanctification. And thank you, Father, that you've given us the gift of faith to believe and that you brought the gospel to us in power and with conviction and in the Holy Spirit. And we thank you and praise you that your word